Our story opens with 12 brothers. That's right, 12. Their dad is Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know, the father Abraham had many sons. That guy. Anyway, number 11 out of Jacob's 12 sons, this dude, his name is Joseph. Now, for all you moms and dads out there, I know you don't have favorites, but Jacob does. He loves Joseph the most, and everybody knows it. He even gives Joseph this flashy, colorful coat just to rub it in all their faces. Well, that ticks off the other brothers enough that they start planning to kill Joseph. Yikes! They are dead set on showing their pipe-dreaming brother he's not as special as everyone says. Certainly not special enough to fulfill whatever fancy purpose he thinks God's calling him to. Then Joseph's brothers decide, hey, you know what'll really teach that little punk a lesson? If we sell him into slavery. And so Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt. At this point, you gotta wonder if Joseph thinks any other surprises might be coming his way. I mean, what else could possibly go wrong? Yeah, about that. Joseph becomes a servant in the house of a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of some pretty risque stuff. So Joseph ends up in prison. Looks like Joseph's situation has gone from bad to worse. You certainly couldn't blame Joseph for feeling forgotten or like there's no way God could still use him to do anything important. But thankfully, Joseph knows God, and God has something special in store. While Joseph's in jail, he gets on the Pharaoh's good side. So Pharaoh sets him free and basically makes him his right-hand man. That's when Egypt starts going through a famine. And guess who comes to buy food? Joseph's brothers who had it out for him. Now, Joseph could easily get his revenge, but he ends up giving his brothers food, forgiveness, and he ultimately saves his entire family. Turns out God did have a big purpose for Joseph's life, even in the midst of some seriously terrible stuff happening. Just listen to what Joseph tells his brothers. You guys planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good, to save people's lives. And that's the same promise God makes all of us today. He will use our stories for good when we begin finding purpose in uncertainty. Welcome to the weekend, everybody, and back into our series, which we are entitling Finding Purpose in Uncertainty. As I think about what we're going to address this weekend, I have a lot of concerns and uh, a lot of sadness in my heart, and that's because there's been so much news lately about Christian leaders who are having to step aside from ministry because of moral failures in their life. In fact, one particular leader who passed away recently, who I just held in such high regard and have read his books, have heard him personally. Others I know have great respect for him, a defender of the faith. Well, it's been found out that he was living at least a part of his life, a double life. And the uh, moral improprieties are, are just really bad. And when you hear something like that, it kind of shakes you up because, you know, we look to people as models and examples for us when things like that happen. It, uh, it kind of shakes our faith and you begin to wonder, is anybody, you know, really holding true? Are there any examples of character and integrity that are out there? It reminds me of an incident that happened in Chicago many years ago. There was a building that burned down to the ground on the southwest side of Chicago. Uh, interestingly enough, the building housed a manufacturer that made fire extinguishers. In fact, this fire was so big that it took over 150 firemen to put it out. 
And it was so hard to get to, they actually had to line up trucks and pump water from one truck to another truck to another truck till they finally got to the fire. And, you know, the irony of it all is that here is this building that houses a company that makes fire extinguishers for other people to put fires out in their homes or in their businesses, and yet they did not provide for a fire to be put out in their own building. Imagine that. So you can walk around and tell people how to live their life all day long. You can get them great practical advice and wisdom. You can tell them how to keep from burning up. But that does not mean that you yourself are not vulnerable to burning up as well. That you yourself are not vulnerable to the things that you encourage other people to overcome in their lives or to avoid in their lives. And so the question becomes, how do we maintain integrity? How do we maintain our character, our faith in God? Especially in these days when there are so many temptations out there to kind of trip us up and, and discourage us. Let's look at the life of Joseph for a few minutes. You know, Joseph had everything taken away from him. I mean, he had his mother taken from him. She died birthing his younger brother, Benjamin. He had his father taken from him. His family was taken from him. Everything that was familiar and everything that was, you know, unique in the customs that he knew, all of that was gone. And the only thing that he seemed to have left was his character, his integrity, and his faith in God. And yet that was about to come up for grabs as well. There was a force that was going to try to even take that from Joseph. Joseph had been sold into slavery, into the estate of a man by the name of Potiphar, who was, in essence, the head of Pharaoh's military. Very important man. And Potiphar Notice that Joseph was very successful in his job that had been given to him in Potiphar's estate. And he caught Potiphar's eye because God's hand was on Joseph. God was blessing him. God was making him successful. But it wasn't just Potiphar's eye that noticed Joseph. There was another eye that was locked in on Joseph as well. We go to the story in Genesis chapter 39 and we read the account. I'm going to pick it up here now at about verse 6. It says, Joseph was very handsome and a well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in the entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? He would be great sin against God. Now, she kept pressuring Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. Then one day, when no one else was around and he had actually gone in to do his work, she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she realized that she had his cloak in her hand, she decided to scream. And of course, when she screamed, all the other male servants came running to find out what was going on. And she said, look, look what this Hebrew slave that, that our master has brought into the house. 
has done to me. He tried to rape me, and when he did, I screamed, and he ran away, and here's his cloak, and she hung on to it until Potiphar came home and then told him that Joseph had tried to rape her. Verse 19, it says, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. I want you to look at this phrase that I pulled out of the text. It goes like this. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. Now, I want to ask you a question. What's the pressure that, that you feel day after day in your life? I mean, I realize there's a lot of sexual temptations out there in the culture and the world that you face, your children face, your grandchildren face, your friends face. I realize it's there 24 hours a day. But there's more than just sexual temptation, right? I mean, you can feel the pressure to lie. You can feel the pressure to be dishonest. You can feel the pressure to do drugs, to, be, to become drunk. You can, do, you can feel the pressure to be um, a cheater. You can feel the pressure to overindulge. You, know, you can feel the pressure to get even. You can feel the pressure to compromise in order to please a certain group. And, and the list goes on of all the ways that, that we feel temptation pressing in on us, whether it's at home or school or work or play. <clears throat> in the media, it's all around us. So what are the pressures that, uh, that you're feeling right now? They're kind of creeping around you that are pushing in on your life and, and you're feeling maybe tantalized by them. You're feeling tempted by them. Maybe you've given in to them and you're struggling with how do I break out of this pattern? I don't want to lose my character. I don't want to lose my faith in God. I don't want to lose my, my witness for Christ. Peter's concerned about things like that. In fact, he wrote Christians in the first century to try to remind them of the pressure that we all face as followers of Christ. And he wrote these words. He said, you know, you got to stay alert. He said, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. When I hear Peter say, stand firm in your faith, I think of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 when we were talking about our uh, series on spiritual warfare, which if you missed, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It'll be very helpful to understand what we're dealing with now. Paul said, stand firm in his, in his word to the Ephesian believers and to you and to me. But in Joseph's case, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a roaring, prowling lion that was after him. It was a cougar. It was his boss's wife who wanted him. Now, listen carefully. It's a much bigger picture than an older woman preying on a handsome, good-looking young guy. There's actually three kinds of temptation that are taking place in this passage of Scripture. Three things that are coming at Joseph to try to lure him away from his integrity and to lure him away from God. And I find that these three forces are at work today, trying to lure you and me away from God, trying to destroy our integrity and the integrity of our children. What are they and how do we, 
How do we overcome them? How do we avoid them? What can we understand about them? Here's the first one. The first temptation is what I'm going to call the power play. The power play. Now, we, we kind of talked about this already uh, in the fact that um, Potiphar was the head of Pharaoh's military, which means that Potiphar was a very, very powerful man in Egypt. He was part of the inner circle. And so whoever was connected to him, in a sense, shared to some degree in that power. So for instance, Mrs. Potiphar, his wife, she had power as a result of her relationship to her husband. And in this narrative, we see how power can be used. It can be used in an abusive way, it can be used in a good way. She exemplifies using power in a very abusive kind of way. I mean, she, in essence, says to Joseph these words, come and sleep with me. Now, the English does not pick up the tone and the strength of the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, what she, in essence, says to him is, now sleep with me, or now have sex. In other words, she's using her power in order to satisfy her physical desires. And you can use your power as well, and I can use my power to get what we want out of people or out of situations. Whatever that might be, it doesn't have to be sex. It can be many different kinds of things. We can use the power of our personality, the power of our looks, the power of persuasion, the power of our authority, our position. There's so many ways that we can be abusive with power. And that's what was happening with her in her relationship with Joseph. But Joseph also had power as well. I mean, Joseph, it says, was made the assistant, more or less, to Potiphar, the oversee his entire household. And the scholars tell us that the word that's used to describe Joseph's position in Potiphar's household is the same word that's used to describe the relationship that Joshua had to Moses. So in essence, Joseph is like the COO, the chief of operations, for the entire state of Potiphar. So he has a lot of power. I mean, he says, everything's been given to me to control and run, except you, he says. And what Joseph does is he uses that power that he has to honor God, to respect his master, and to be a blessing to those that he had influence over. And we see that especially at the end of his life when he saves his family and saves Egypt, in essence, saves the world at that time. So we see the abusive use of power by Mrs. Potiphar, and we see the right use of power by Joseph to honor God, respect his, his master, and to be a blessing to those who would benefit as a result. You see, here's something important about Joseph. <clears throat> Ultimately, Joseph didn't see himself as working for Potiphar or later on for Pharaoh. He saw himself as, as working for God, and he used his power in a way that would honor God and benefit those whom God called him to serve and influence. I want you to think about yourself right now. You have power too. If you're a young person watching me right now, you have power too. We all have power to some degree. And the question is, 
Who do we see ourselves living for, working for, so to speak? Do we realize that God has allowed us to have that power, however much it is, in order to honor him? And to use that to bless and be, a, and be of a benefit to others. I think a lot of times in this very self-centered world that we live in, we treat our power kind of like our money. It's mine to use as I want. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And in this book, he talks about really two cities. He talks about the city of God or the city of heaven and, and the city of earth. And he talks about the citizens of heaven and the citizens of earth. And he says, each of them have a different motive. He says, the uh, citizens of heaven are governed by the motive of love for God. He says, the citizens, uh, the citizens of earth are governed by the motive of love for self. Therefore, the difference between those who are citizens of the city of God and those who are citizens of the earth is how they use their power. So how are you using that power that you have? I came across a, a story about a young man by the name of Jared Brock. And I was fascinated by his story. Uh, Jared Brock uh, grew up watching a dad who wanted to be a millionaire by the time he was 30, but never made it. Because before he turned 30, he gave his life to serving God. And Jared said that as a teenager, when I, when I heard that and saw that, he said, I decided that my dad was a fool and a failure. And I made up my mind that I would do what my dad didn't do. I would become a millionaire by the time I was 30. And he was well on his way. He was very good at flipping real estate. He was making money as they say, hand over fist. He married his childhood sweetheart, Michelle. He became a Christian, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to let God deal with his financial power. He's going to use that the way he saw fit. And then something happened on his honeymoon that changed his life. He and Michelle went to Lake Nicaragua, where they vacationed for their honeymoon, and experienced a convergence of Wealth and poverty, beauty and pollution. It's a massive lake. One, uh, not the largest, but one of the top, I think, 16 largest lakes, freshwater lakes in the world. And he said, my heart broke one day when I saw a young man on crutches without legs hobble up to a fire hydrant, pull out a straw and drink from it. He said, when I saw that happen, he said, my dream of being a millionaire by the time I'm 30, he said it died. It died right there. And it changed his life. He and Michelle now live in a modified trailer and pour their lives out and their resources out to those who are needy. He's a filmmaker. He's, a, he's an author and a blogger. I have not seen his films, but he's done a film where he deals with the whole issue of sex trafficking around the world and exposing that. The Dangers of Pornography. He's done a film um, on, on racism. And he's done a lot of work, but he gives those resources continuously away to help others. And he has this motto, and his motto goes something like this. I'm no longer pursuing a higher standard of living. I'm pursuing a higher standard of giving. I really like that. I think it's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves, including me. 
That is, am I pursuing a higher standard of living or am I pursuing a higher standard of giving? Money, wealth is power. And here in the West, we have a lot of it compared to the rest of the world. And I just want to do a shout out to those of you who are part of Whitdale Church. And thank you for how you use that to impact God's kingdom here, near, and far. You're making a huge difference, and I'm proud of you for that, and I encourage you to keep that up. But you see, there's many forms of power that God's given to us, and to use it for his glory, ah, there's nothing better. So how are you dealing with the whole issue of the temptation of power? Using it for yourself or using it for God? All right, let's get to the obvious temptation in the text that we started out with. And that's the second temptation, which is the whole issue of sensuality. The whole issue of sensuality. So we look at Joseph and uh, he's being told, he's being commanded by this powerful woman, have sex now, (laughs) come sleep with me now. And it's day after day after day. Did you notice how he responds to her? He asks a a question. He says, how can I do such a wicked thing? How can I do such a wicked thing? I want to ask you a question. What does he mean by that? Why is it such a wicked thing for him to sleep with her? Now, it's kind of a tricky question. I'll tell you that right now. Because the obvious answer that we all see is, well, it's a wicked thing because it's adultery. You don't sleep with another person's spouse. You just don't do that. It's immoral. It's wrong. Absolutely agree with that. But I want you to think about it in another way as well. Not only was it wrong to sleep with someone else's wife, it was wrong for him to sleep with someone who wasn't his wife. Or in the case, if he was female, who wasn't his husband. Do you catch the subtle difference there? You know, I think the Apostle Paul had this story in mind of Joseph when he wrote these words to the Corinthians trying to help them understand a proper sexual ethic. He said, and don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. Now, that's a really important concept to keep in mind. The two are united into one. Run from sexual sin. Don't you hear Joseph there? See Joseph? Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God, says Paul, with your body. Now, what Paul is saying here is, look, sex outside of marriage between a husband and wife is wrong. Doesn't matter what my feelings are saying to me. Doesn't matter what the culture says to me. Doesn't even matter what people who call themselves Christians and who want to reinterpret the scriptures say to me. Paul says sex outside of marriage between husband and wife is wrong. Why? Because God gave the gift of sex as a way to create the sense of oneness for a lifetime. So the act of sex is really the culmination of the promise, the commitment between a man and woman 
wherein they say, listen, I am promising you, I am giving to you, I am committing to you my whole life, socially, economically, legally, physically, spiritually. I'm entrusting my whole self to you. I belong to you completely and to nobody else. Isn't that beautiful? On the other hand, the world has a different perspective. The world's perspective is, look, sex is for me to enjoy, to fulfill my desires, my feelings, my wants. And I, I want your body to fulfill that in my body, but I don't want to entrust myself to you. I don't want to give myself wholly over to you. Let's just mutually benefit from this and then go our separate ways. Or, you know, do it until we're kind of tired of each other. And that's, that's not how God planned it to be. And that idea of sexuality, which, by the way, just goes with what we talked about a couple of weekends ago, this whole focus on self, that life is about me enjoying me. It's about me enjoying my body. It's, it's about my feelings. This body of mine is my tool to use as I want to fulfill what's going on deep inside of me. I mean, that, that is the issue that is ruining families and ruining society today. It just is. You know, you have to have a Christian perspective. Just from a sociological perspective, it's just causing so much damage and heartache. Because it doesn't work. It's not how God invented it and developed it to be. Now, you may disagree with me, but again, I'm coming at it from a biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview, and also from just a point of logic. What works and what doesn't work? What causes pain? What causes hurt? Now, I realize Christians, you know, can have problems in their marriage, and that can lead to divorce and all kinds of pain and issues like that. I get that. But those who follow and maintain and discipline themselves to do it God's way, have a greater blessing, have greater joy in their lives than those who don't. As you know, I'm a fan of, of Tim Keller, and I think he's just a scholar and, and, a, and a wise man, and he's written a lot uh, about these whole issues uh, in the area of sexuality. In a few minutes, I want to share with you a, a quote that he gives, but, but before we do that, I want to ask you a question. Why is it that uh, Joseph runs away from her? Why, why does he run? Why does he just stand there and, and just control himself? It's because he's a whole lot wiser than some of us. What he realizes is if he just stands there and tries to control himself, he's going to lose the battle. If she gets her arms around him and things begin to happen, right? He's not going to be able to maintain. Joseph understands that if you try to conquer yourself by yourself, you're going to lose ultimately. So he runs away from her. But here's the question I want to ask you. Where does he go when he runs? I want to suggest to you that spiritually speaking, he runs away from her and runs to God. Why does he run to God? Because God, if you look at the story, think about it carefully, God was a greater passion for him than her, than his own desires in his own life. All of us have desires. And it's hard to control those desires. We need to get those desires kind of ordered under the greater desire. Let me give you an example. It actually comes from, from uh, Joseph's father's life, Jacob. 
Tim Keller pulls this out. I, I think it's such a powerful example. He says that um, if you look back at Jacob's life, you know, Jacob had to flee his older brother Esau who wanted to kill him for stealing the birthright. And he goes up to Haran and he meets Rachel and falls, I mean, madly in love with her. Just read the text. And uh, he's so infatuated with her that, that he wants to marry her. And her dad says, well, it's going to take you seven years. You're going to have to prove to me that you're worthy of being her husband. You're going to have to, you know, earn some money and make a living. And here, why don't you take care of my sheep for me? So for seven long years, Jacob works in order to have the hand of Rachel. He can't be with her. He can't have a physical relationship with her. I don't know about you, but what a struggle that would be, right? Can you imagine all the desires you'd be dealing with? Not just wanting to, you know, have your wife and not just wanting to have a physical relationship with her and not just, you know, wanting to be independent and have maybe a family and have your own business and, you know, take care of things on your own. I mean, you'd, be, you'd be dealing with all those desires. But what's so interesting is that when he finishes the seven years, Jacob says, you know, those seven years were like a few days to me because my love with her, for her was so great. In other words, his passion and love for Rachel ordered all the other desires in his life. And so Keller says this. He says, self-control is not basically the will suppressing the desires of the heart, but it's all the desires of the heart being reordered all the loves of the heart being reordered by an overmastering, passionate, supreme love. And for Joseph, God was his Rachel. His, his passionate love, his overriding love was God. And he let that love, he let that which was outside of him, so to speak, order everything else in his life. Let me ask you a question. Who is your Rachel? Who is it in your life? What is it in your life that you're so passionate about? You won't let any of the other desires supersede that. It oversees, it orders all the other desires in your life. And that takes us to the third temptation in the passage. And that is this whole issue of despair. This whole issue of despair. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I want you to think about Joseph with me for a moment, okay? First, he's thrown into a pit by his brothers. Then he's sold off into slavery. Then he ascends in the household of Potiphar as the COO. Then he's got this woman who's just pressing on him every day. Come sleep with me, come sleep with me, come sleep with me. And he keeps saying, no, no, no. And he does his best to avoid her. And then one day he's there, she's there, she grabs him and he runs and she makes up this whole lie that he's trying to rape her. And he's thrown into prison. Now put yourself in Joseph's place for a moment. How would you feel? I don't know about you, but I'd be so filled with discouragement and despair. I'd be like, why, God? And we're going to talk about this in the next message next weekend. You know, the why me kind of feeling that we get sometimes when you do what's right and you're rewarded with evil for it. It's so easy to fall into despair when things don't work out the way you think they should. Or from your perspective, they ought to if God is really in control. 
We'll talk next weekend a lot more about how you overcome that despair. And we'll see how Joseph overcomes it. But I want to talk about Jesus for a moment. Because in so many ways, Joseph's life points to Jesus, who himself faced temptations, three in the wilderness. Look what it says in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. It says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, look, understands our weakness. For he faced all of the same testings that we do. Yet he did not sin, and thank God he didn't. He couldn't. He was the Son of God. He said, well then, what does it mean that he faced all those things? How can he really face it? Well, he faced it in his weakness. He knew what it was like to have it coming at him, pulling on him. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it or when we face our weaknesses. See, Christ is there to give me strength to overcome these things in my life. But I've got to run to him. I mean, think about Jesus for a moment being tempted. He was tempted to use his power to save himself, but instead he used his power to honor his father and to save you and me and to bless us with grace and forgiveness. Jesus was tempted to use his passion to turn the stones into bread. He'd been starving. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 nights. How many of us would have used our power to turn that stone into a loaf of bread to meet that passion? But instead, he used his passion to honor his father, to uphold the truth rather than please himself. And Jesus was tempted by the despair of the cross. Remember the garden? Father, if it's possible, remove this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus was tempted with the despair of the cross, yet he embraced the joy of the cross, which is your salvation and my salvation. Why? Because, listen, in a sense, you were the Rachel in his mind and heart. His passion for you superseded any passion to save himself and to spare himself. Can I ask you a question? Who's that Rachel in your life? I pray that it's Jesus. I pray that your passion for who he is and what he's done for you far outweighs all the other passions that can sometimes rage in your life. I pray that your desire for God and your love for God and who he is and what he's done for you is what puts everything into order and structure in your heart. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, it's possible that God is speaking to your heart right now and showing you some area where you have succumbed to temptation in your own life. I want you to know that God loves you and 
wants to forgive you. Why not right now where you are, quietly confess that to him? Or later on today, when you have a lone moment, why don't you just, why don't you just lay it out in front of God and say, Father, I've been, I've been a fool. I haven't been running away from this. I've been running to it. I've allowed this to become bigger in my life than you. And I ask your forgiveness. Help me, Lord, help me. And can I just say for any of you who might be struggling in the area of sexuality, we would love to confidentially help you and encourage you to overcome because I know some of those addictions can be very strong. We read about it. We hear about it. We have a great recovery ministry that can help. We've got one-on-one counseling that can help in discipleship. So if you're struggling in an area, especially in the area of sexuality with temptation, and you want to reach out confidentially to us, to our pastoral care ministry, please do that and let us help you live a life of victory. God bless you, and I'll be with you next weekend.